Hey, what's going on? Welcome to Angular Air. I'm your host, Justin Schwarzenberger. And on today's episode, we are going to be talking Angular in the .NET world. Pretty stoked about this episode. I've done a lot of stuff in the .NET world back in the day, so it'll be really cool to get into that. And I know our viewers have been anxious for some .NET and Angular content, so hopefully we'll start kicking that off with, with this episode. Before we get started, I want to remind everybody that uh, Angular Connect is just around the corner. Uh, it's a conference, Europe's largest Angular conference coming up on November 6th and 7th in London. Uh, if you're in the area or can make it to the area, you definitely should uh, try and attend that conference. We had an episode the other day on it with Pete Darwin, uh, getting into all the details about 40 plus speakers, uh, all the different events that are going to be going on. Pretty exciting conference and exciting vibe. Uh, really great experience. Pete actually messaged me recently, let me know that um, there's actually an event going on the day before the conference. Uh, uh, Microsoft Hackathon happening in central London. It's going to be free. There's going to be food, drinks, prizes, that sort of thing. So that should be pretty cool. Uh, so if you're attending and connect, check that thing out. Um, and I believe that there's another week. They've extended another week of the standard ticket pricing. So tickets are still available at the standard rate until Tuesday, October 16th. So if you don't have a ticket, go grab a ticket, check it out. It's a pretty cool conference. All right, let's get into things. I'll introduce our panelists. Uh, joining us today, we got Bonnie Brennan. Bonnie, what's going on? Hold on, Anana. That was perfect timing because I was having problems with my Bluetooth and I was like, oh no, I have to say something and I can't hear. And it was like the perfect <laughs> amount of time for you, Justin, to like give me to stall so that I could get, that was so perfect. I couldn't have planned it better. Cool. And I'm super, and I know I always say this, I know, but I'm so excited about uh, our guest today because he's super cool. I always thought .NET was kind of intimidating because I didn't learn .NET. I like I was about to, but I always thought it was kind of scary, you know, um, and he just makes it seem not scary. Well, they, look, we're helping each other out. I had the perfect time. Now you got the perfect segue into our guest, uh, Jeremy Lickness. Jeremy, how's it going? It is going fantastic. I'm super happy to be here to make uh, .NET less scary for everyone. That'll be the new new tagline. Making .NET less scary all around the world is uh, right. what we'll focus on. So I'm I'm very happy to be inside rather than outside too. This is a very typical cold, rainy Seattle day. So it's uh, definitely warm and dry inside, but su super stoked to, to share what I have to share and, and jump on board. Awesome, awesome, we're looking forward to it. Why don't you uh, fill in our viewers, uh, give us a little bit of information about yourself and what you got going on, that sort of thing. Sure, sounds good. Um, I like to joke that I've, uh, so I've been a professional developer for 25 years, or as some people might say, a quarter of a century. <laughs> it's a minute or two. And uh, I joke that I spent half of my career on the uh, product side, working at companies that had software internally building that software. I spent half of my career on the consulting side, uh, consulting for companies, giving them advice and, and providing solutions. And now I'm starting on the third half of my career. I was never good with math, by the way. And um, that's focused on developer relations. My, my current title, I've been at Microsoft just over a year. And my current title is Cloud Developer Advocate, which I, I get a lot of questions about. People ask me, what is it? And I say, it's obvious I advocate for developers in the cloud. And that doesn't seem good enough. So I've, I've broken it down to what I call three Cs. Makes it easy to remember. We uh, focus a lot on community. You'll find us at conferences and user groups, but also online. 
online communities, Twitter, open source projects. We like to meet developers where they're at. We focus on content. That's everything from docs.microsoft.com that I'm not sure a lot of people realize is a massive GitHub project that's all markdown based and open source. But we also do blog posts and, and video and other content. And then the final and I think the most important piece is we connect with engineering. We are an engineering organization. We do not report up to marketing or sales. And we're given a lot of freedom to be genuine within our community. And the advocacy part is, is very real as we go out and find challenges, roadblocks, things that are missing, things that can be improved. We have a really great connection with the teams here at, in Redmond at Microsoft headquarters that we can influence change and, and fix things. So it's a pr pretty exciting job. I'm 14 months in and still love it as much as day one. So we'll see, see what the future holds for that. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. We've had a couple of uh, the team on uh, episodes before. Um, so we're pretty excited to have more. That's great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Cool. All right. So we're talking angular and .net today, right? We are. It's a, it, it's a topic near and dear to my heart. I started with .NET in the early days, probably about a year after it came out. I, I gave it that, that year to be vetted and, and have some people kick the tires, not me. And then uh, when it was viable, started out. But, uh, you know, for, gosh, it's going on 20 years now. I've specialized in web-based apps. And web apps obviously looked a lot different in 1998 <laughs> than they do in, in 2018. Um, I'm going to get dinged by some people for this, but I, uh, I almost always end up mentioning Silverlight. <laughs> and uh, so Silverlight Don't was worry, a... Don't worry, we won't tell anyone, Jeremy. Okay, I'm, I'm just making sure. But uh, so Silverlight was interesting for me because like a lot of developers... Um, and by the way, a lot of people talk about how frustrating JavaScript was because it ran differently in every browser back in the day, and there's still differences today. I think it's more accurate to say the DOM implementation, the way we interacted with HTML, was what really varied wildly, and we just wanted something standard. And uh, Silverlight provided this promise of, of using the languages we knew, the tool sets we knew, and run on any device, and when that commitment uh, didn't fall through because it wasn't allowed to run on phones, which suddenly became massively popular. Uh, we had to shift gears. And for me, you know, some people went to mobile development and to some other um, focus areas using C Sharp uh, and XAML technologies. I pivoted to start looking at how can we leverage JavaScript and make it first class. And about that same time, we started coming out with those different frameworks, right? Backbone JS, uh, Knockout JS. Uh, there's there's been a long history leading up to Angular JS, Angular two. Was there three? I'm not sure. Four, six, and uh, uh, but plenty of new versions coming out. And dare I say, React and, and Vue as well. So uh, a, a lot of different options there. But most of my customers in in the last half of of my career were Microsoft.NET customers, but they recognized the need to have a, a really great experience on the web. And that meant taking advantage of, of client-side code, single-page applications. So I've, I've had a lot of history working with production applications 
using Angular. We're an early adopter of, of Angular JS version. Uh, we were also an early adopter of using TypeScript with Angular, even before it was prescribed as part of Angular 2 and, and beyond, we would use TypeScript to help out with our old Angular projects. And, uh, you know, around that time, Microsoft went through sort of a, a revolution or some people would call it an evolution to embrace open source and start focusing not on, hey, you have to use our tools, but let's build tools to meet you where you're at. And that's why I'm super stoked that there's a lot of support out of the box uh, within our developer tools, but also within .NET for JavaScript frameworks like Angular, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Hey, I want to unpackage a couple of the things that you covered there, right? First okay. Of all, on the, the Silverlight thing, right? We, if we go back in time, we talk about Silverlight. I mean, one of the things that was kind of appealing to that was to provide this opportunity to write a full-fledged application and run it in the browser, right? Something we were right. even Silverlight was like, oh, we could do that, right? Uh, almost that single page app concept. And so that's, there's a kind of that bridge a little bit towards that. That was the problem we we're trying to solve. And now here we are with stuff like Angular that can provide that type of rich solution, right? Absolutely. It's a, it, it's a big bridge, but I think it's also interesting that just because you could run everything in the browser, I was one of the consultants saying, please don't. Like, take, take advantage where it makes sense, but, but please have some logical tiers, have some APIs that you speak to. Don't try to build it into the app. And I'm glad I gave that advice because I had... Uh, several customers who would say, but that's too much work. Oh, we have to separate it. And then when Silverlight stopped being a viable option, there are the customers who built all that functionality directly into the Silverlight app who had to completely rewrite it. Then there are the customers who built a lot of the logic as web API endpoints and used Silverlight as a very rich presentation layer and were able to migrate that into technologies like Angular, React, Vue and whatnot. But, you know, it's it's interesting. I'm, I'm giving a talk, not to plug my talk next week in Atlanta or anything, but uh, uh, I'm going to a, a nice JavaScript conference, Connect Tech. And I, I have two talks there. One talk is is looking at TypeScript through the lens of JavaScript. I take JavaScript and, and refactor it. But the other one's called the 3Ds of, of web development. And this came from me taking a serious look at, you know, what was it about Silverlight that we really loved and what is it about Angular and other front-end frameworks that make them so popular and useful and widespread. And the three things that, that I came up with in, in looking at them, which uh, sort of turned out, it, I hadn't planned it this way, but I call it 3Ds of web development, is really this uh, idea of declarative, right? So in Angular, you can use declarations to define components and, and pieces of, of your UI. Dependency injection, being able to resolve all these different dependencies, but more importantly, mock them when we have to run testing, and then data binding, right? The way to easily abstract that piece of what is the data versus how do we present the data? And I think that that is the key difference between 10 years ago and today in front-end frameworks is they've adopted these paradigms that were very popular on the server side and are now running inside of our, our browser and using those technologies. Yeah, yeah, 3Ds, I love that, that's great. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, 
Yeah, that's another thing I want to kind of unpackage is that journey, right? You mentioned um, backbone and knockout. And there was this period where we went from like Silverlight and we just stepped into like the .NET world and we had like MVC, right? And we would utilize .NET to do these chunks and these these delivery of these pages or these partial pages. And then we'd leverage stuff like backbone or, or knockout to then do that data binding and kind of tie it all together. But there are these two combination of things going on there. Right. And right. It's something like angular JS and angular that starts to provide this platform that tries to bring kind of a lot of that stuff all into the browser. Right. Um, and I think that then the, the whole TypeScript thing, I mean, that's the other part that we want to kind of unpackage here, right? Is really, I think TypeScript's one of those big bridges between uh, the .NET space and Angular and what makes, you know, kind of living in this Angular space comfortable for .NET developers and, and possibly vice versa, right? Is this commonality now between that and C Sharp and a lot of things that you're kind of used to and kind of dive in now to both of them. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely it. In fact, I was fortunate enough to be on a project. It turned out to be about a three-year project, and it was this massive rewrite. There were 17 different systems this company had, and they wanted them to collapse into a single unified development experience with a web-based front-end. They were using you know, 17 different technologies for UI, everything from WinForms to Access to Excel to what have you, and they wanted it fully web-based. And so we knew based on the type of responsiveness they needed, it had to be a single page application. We couldn't wait for server pages to re-render. And we started out using one technology stack, but we we're pure JavaScript and using Knockout for data binding. And about six months in, something really strange happened. And I know this other people don't run into this on their projects, but the customer pulled us aside and said they wanted us to do more faster, if you can believe that. <laughs> they actually wanted it more features in it and faster delivery. Go go figure. So we, we had a pretty serious workshop brainstorming session. And when we looked at where we were spending the bulk of our time, it was cycles of debugging JavaScript issues. And this wasn't a case that we had a lot of .NET developers who lacked JavaScript experience and were, were sort of skewing the curve. We also hired some very seasoned JavaScript front-end developers, and they were having some challenges too because the code base was, was massive. I mean, we had, I think, about a dozen developers working in, in parallel. So one of the things someone on the team did, and I can't take credit for this, but one of my colleagues spiked a uh, proof of concept using Angular and TypeScript and pulled us aside, kind of demoed the way it would change the workflow. And we said, this looks pretty cool. Let, let's do this. We're going to make a decision to go for Angular. We'll make a decision to go for TypeScript, knowing that the JavaScript that TypeScript produces is clean JavaScript. It's readable. It's usable. So if we have to abort, we can just check in the JavaScript files, tear down the, the TypeScript, and, and we'll be good. So it felt like low risk. And um, I can't quantify how much of it was Angular versus TypeScript, but we started delivering about four times faster. If you look at a story comes into a queue, we start to build it. It's tested. It's considered feature complete. It was four times acceleration, which was phenomenal. But a huge thing that started happening was we caught all these stupid little errors early on. 
we would catch the the naming issue where we named something incorrectly or used a camel case versus Pascal case. And all these small things were caught before we could even check in the code, which made a huge difference for the development cycle. So I think TypeScript's key. And what's interesting for me is I looked initially at TypeScript as a tool to make it easier for .NET developers or even Java developers, anyone in a strongly typed language to grok and use JavaScript. But what I found is even the seasoned JavaScript developers who resisted it tooth and nail, we don't need a new language. And, and it's a, the flexibility, the fact that TypeScript extends JavaScript and doesn't replace it, they ended up starting to see the possibilities and, and the benefits. And by the end of it, all of the seasoned front-end JavaScript developers we hired were huge fans of, of TypeScript, which was amazing to see. Yeah, it was a, an interesting you know, journey to the acceptance of TypeScript, right? Uh, I was, was fascinated at the very beginning where it was so much of this, everybody kind of felt that it was all or nothing. Like you go all in in TypeScript or you stay all in in JavaScript. And, and it was really this, you know, you just switch your extensions to TS, use the transpiler, write your same JavaScript, and then do a little right. sprinkle of TypeScript and work your way into being comfortable with it. Um, but that didn't seem to like latch on very much. Everybody kind of felt it was all or nothing one way or the other. Um, but it's pretty cool to see now where we're at and, and the acceptance of it and how much power there is with it. Well, I have to thank Angular for that too, and, and Google, uh, quite honestly, because regardless of what I could show for the benefits, there was still that stigma that this is a Microsoft thing. And when Angular team backed using TypeScript uh, for Angular 2, I think that had a huge uh, boost for the language. And I think uh, it was exactly as I expected when it started, there were all these blog posts and tweets of coming in and, and taking away my JavaScript and what is this TypeScript? And and now I think universally people are like, hey, this is actually a pretty good thing. In fact, I can't imagine trying to write modern Angular code in pure JavaScript and manually declaring decorators and, and doing all these things. Like I've done it. I did a post that I was showing, hey, yes, you can write it with JavaScript and, and it it's become painful. And um, which is ironic because when we're writing with TypeScript, we're writing with JavaScript, but we're affording all the tools and accelerators that it gives us. So, yeah, it's funny. I've talked to people about this, and they and they tend to be very resistant to change because a lot of developers want to keep doing it. Sorry, my dogs are having crazy time back there. Um, they want to just keep doing it the, the way they've been doing it. But if you can do a proof of concept and show them uh, what the code looks like, it's it's much it's cleaner, it's nicer, it's faster. And uh, once people see it, they usually can't resist. Right, and that was my motivation for the the talk I'm giving next week. Of it's called TypeScript from JavaScript, and my idea is is let's get rid of this notion that TypeScript is something different, and literally let's take a JavaScript file that has some bugs in it that any IDE is not going to find just by inspecting the JavaScript code, rename it to a TypeScript extension. And almost immediately, we start seeing benefits of the way that TypeScript tracks types and interfaces and signatures and expectations in, in the code base. And just doing simple things like getting rid of having to worry about what is this by using a Lambda expression so they're consistent and hierarchical. 
and there's an, and those are my lights going out. So my question is, can you see me okay, or should I go wave my hand and make them come on again? We can see you okay, but you can go ahead and wait. Yeah. Let's I'll, see I'll if I can. Right, uh, you can get that back on. Right, um, it's kind of cool but spooky. Yeah, and maybe it fits with you know October and Halloween coming up. I don't know. All right, we can so, spin that. What um, what role when we talk about Angular and .NET? Like, what role does .NET play? Is it the server just serving up our application? What what else? Can it do like I was starting about that? Glad you asked. <laughs> Actually, um, the, so so there's uh, I like to talk to it from from two perspectives because there is a, a very nice clean separation of looking at Angular as Angular and .NET as .NET, and even having the development happen in in parallel. Angular developers can talk to REST endpoints, and .NET developers can develop .NET. And then it makes a very strong case for easily standing up code for your, your REST API endpoints. There's a, a lot of, and you know, when I, I talk about .NET, really today I talk mostly about .NET Core. And there's a reason why. Uh, there's a little bit of history. And so for those not familiar with it, there's a .NET that's been around, I think 2001 is when the first release came out. And it's, it's been out for some time, and that's typically associated in people's minds with Windows machines and, and running uh, solely in that environment. .NET Core came out several years ago, and the focus was leveraging the concepts we know about .NET and the languages we're familiar with, C-sharp being one of the predominant languages, but there are others. But uh, building it with a cross-platform runtime so that I can truly build an application and I can build it from and deploy it to Windows, Linux, or Mac machines. And that was a huge difference. And when that first version came out, the focus was on greenfield scenarios. What does it take to get up and running with a modern web development experience? And that really embraced things like MVC, which is a, a framework for standing up web pages, not to be confused with the pattern. It can loosely follow that pattern, but it's actually a technology name. And, and we're really great at naming things here, by the way. Um, but uh, but so, we, so we have uh, MVC and, uh, and that sort of, of segue, but then .NET Core 2 came out and I think it had a, a double uh, effect for traditional .NET developers. .NET Core supported a much larger API surface area, but it's not just useful for .NET developers because any type of developer who wants to do things like advanced data access on the back end, serialization, working with XML documents on the server, there, there's a lot to that that it builds out of the box. And one of the things that's nice about it is .NET Core was built from the ground up with lessons learned from years and years of building the .NET framework. So a lot of focus was put into making it lightweight and performant. And you'll find that .NET Core has an opt-in model. So I start with a very core framework and then I can opt-in to have things like routes and, and template pages. And, and that makes it powerful. But if you look at the performance, statistics, every version gets faster and faster. So it's a very high performing and it's a low barrier to entry to, to get started, especially if you're a C-sharp developer. 
In fact, um, you know, I don't know if you have any questions, but I do have a, a little demo that I can show of, of what that experience looks like. And what's important to me about the experience is I can show it on my Windows machine, but the experience is exactly the same developing from a Linux machine or a uh, Mac machine. Yeah, definitely want to check that out. Okay, cool. Let me share my desktop then. To do entire screen being dangerous here, sharing everything. That's fine. And let me know when you can see things. Yep, we see VS Code. Okay, so let me navigate where we're at. Everything I'm showing this, excuse my inception moment while we <laughs> recede into the distance. This is a repo on GitHub, and I'll zoom in. Let me know if the Zoom's working okay. Yep, that looks good. Thank you. Yep, so this is Jeremy Lickness Angular-Net. That's what these, these projects are on. And I show a few different scenarios. The README talks about the, the different scenarios. But what I've stood up, and I kind of did a reveal there, but that's okay. If we look inside the code, there's this static app. I'm going to open this up. And this was created just using what we would traditionally be used to, ng-new, right? So I just spun up a new project, and I added a simple service, and this service you're looking at. And what I'm using is an equation called bifurcation, and it basically takes a certain value and iterates through a, a recursive equation several times and just comes up with some values. And the whole idea behind this application is if we look at app component, I've got a canvas reference that I'm pulling in. And then what I'm doing is I'm setting it to 800 by 600. And I'm dividing this into values on a spectrum from 0 to, to 4, which is where interesting things happen with this equation. And as I go through each value, I call this iterate function that here it's mapping it to a scale of 4. Then it calls the service, which is going to basically run 100 iterations, skip the first 10 because you know we let the equation settle down a little bit. And then when it gets the result, it's plotting the results. So, so pretty, I say straightforward. This may look like uh, gibberish to, to some people. But again, just a canvas for each column on the canvas. These are pixel columns. I'm going to call an endpoint. That endpoint is going to run a recursive equation, which is r times x times 1 minus x. So it gets the output, plugs it back in. The value of r is based on the column we're at. When we get the results, we, we just fill these tiny rectangles and, and plot them. So that's the Angular side of things. I can do an ng-serve and stand it up. And I'm actually going to do that right now. So I'm going to pop over. I've got a, a bash window in my static app that I'll use to do my ng-serve. So we'll get that up and running, and then I'll show you uh, a... Um, a call on the other side. So this is just going to stand up the, the Angular side. I could easily have a, a node or, or some other endpoint. But if we come over to this core API project now, this project is a .NET Core project. And before I dive into the details, I want to come here and show you what I did to start this project. I basically created a directory called like my new API. 
and then I'll go into that directory and I'll do .NET new web API. And web API is the flavor of application that stands up RESTful endpoints for me. And it contains some, some built-in features that make it, I believe, relatively straightforward. And that's all it takes to stand up a new version of this. And that, hey, oh, go ahead. Real quick. Uh, so the .NET, that's the um, command to run the .NET CLI, correct? That, that is correct. So just like we have Angular for Angular new, we have .NET. And if I do .NET by itself, it's going to give me some basic options. I can do .NET new without any parameters. And it gives me a list of different types of templates I have. And what .NET new does is it builds out a, a new, it basically scaffolds a new application for me. But this is a command line tool that's consistent across platforms that I can use to scaffold, build, and run, as well as test .NET applications. I think that's another good uh, bridge point for Angular developers, you know, and connecting with .NET developers or, or getting into the .NET space as we've got another familiar type of CLI that we're similar to what we're used to. Correct. And, and when you pull down uh, .NET Core, the CLI comes with it regardless of the, the platform that you're on, which is pretty cool. And then um, let's see, control K. If we look in this core API, this is basically what was set up with .NET New. In fact, I didn't change anything here in the startup. So we have a startup file. You can see here we've got some services that are injected. So think of these as when you have providers in Angular and you're injecting things in your components. We have a concept called middleware that I can set up things like parsing JWT tokens or adding different types of authentication. It's all done through middleware in this pipeline of HTTP. So here I'm adding the MVC technology that's gonna allow me to, to scaffold my uh, endpoints. And here I'm adding cores support, cross-origin resource scripting, I think it stands for. But this is how I can run locally and still access this service even though it's on a, another domain. And there's some conditions here, but it's a really light file and programs are a wrapper that kicks that off where the really interesting thing happens is in this controller. And when you do that .NET new web API like I did earlier, it scaffolds a controller. In fact, let me just show you what you get out of the box and, and we'll actually, we'll run it. So I'm in my new web API. What I can do is just go straight to .NET run. And what .NET run's gonna do is just like in Angular, we have NPM packages. There's something in uh, .NET called NuGet packages. And it's the way we, we pull in packages. So if there's any dependencies on packages, just like doing an NPM install, this is gonna do what's called a .NET restore, which loads those packages. Then it's gonna build for me, and then it's gonna host this application. You can see it's already hosted. We've got a non-certified endpoint and a secured SSL endpoint. So I'm gonna do this localhost 5001, and we'll just open up a new window, do localhost 5001. And this won't get me anything because there's no default web page. What I need to do is go to this API values and this will return two values for me, or I can do values slash one, 
and that'll do a git. And it's just a really simple application out of the box. If we look at the code that's associated with it, I'm going to break out of here and launch Visual Studio Code, which I love to use, by the way, because this is also cross-platform. It'll work the same on Mac, Linux, or, or Windows. This is what came out of the box, and I have this controller called a values controller. The route is saying that we're going by convention. So whatever I name this controller by convention, this route's going to turn into it. So it'll be API values, which is what I navigated to. And then we just tag methods with things like get. So this gets a, a simple array. And you can see there's no database. It's just uh, doing pretend calls. This is a get with a route. I'm specifying I'm going to pass in the ID. So that's passed in for me. I'm expecting it as an integer. And I'm just returning value, again, hard-coded. This is an example where I get a value from the body of a post. And I could turn this into a class that's well-defined with properties on it and parse out a JSON payload that's in the body of the request or however format it's posted in. We've got put and delete. So again, just default methods. If I close this out and go back to the Angular example, what I've done is I've created a controller with a random number generator. Then when you make this call, I'm expecting this R value, so that's in the route right here. And then from the query string, I'm taking skip and iterations. Iterations is how many times do I call this method, and skip is how many values do I ignore. And just by tagging it with this attribute, kind of like a decorator in Angular, I'm telling it, get this from the query string, not from the route. So this is an example call. And what I'm doing is I'm writing some logs and then making doing some simple parameter checks. And then I just run this equation, add it to a, a list, and return it as an array. So this is all the code I do to stand up that endpoint. And if we go ahead and run this one, let me make sure I'm in the right place. Do.NET run. Okay, it's on this, the same endpoint. So this time I'm going to come out and do HTTPS localhost 5001 API bifurc, and I'm just going to steal this link in my history. And it comes out and returns a set of values. And I get this not secure because it's using a development certificate, so it's not technically trusted. Now that I have that, let me make sure I'm still serving my Angular app. So I'm serving my Angular app over on this side. It's listening on 4200. Let's take a look at the Angular app. So let's I'll leave this one open. And I'll navigate to my Angular app. And this will pull up. So I started with the ng new, then I added that. And this is what happens. So these are settling down to a single value, fluctuating between two. And then it becomes what makes this a, a chaos equation or a fractal graphic is if I were to zoom in to this band that you can kind of see on the, the right edge here, this little section right here. 
if I were to zoom in on that, it would look exactly like the main diagram you see. Fractals are a lot of fun, and I love using them in exa example apps. But that's the, um, the experience of standing up a REST endpoint and consuming it from Angular. Pretty straightforward, if you will. Very cool. Very cool. So kind of like to summarize about it, it's real similar to the concept of if we stand up a like a Node.js endpoint, right? And we're building out the, the data endpoint for that. And we go through this process of, of handling the URL structure and things like that. Um, but that's being done now in, in your example in the .NET space, right? Exactly. And, and what I love about it is uh, again, I, I .NET new, I, I add some code, I can add some tests, and then I can stand it up. And what I get as a result of that can be hosted through the .NET runtime. So I can run it on servers, I can run it on Linux. I can also containerize it and run it as a Docker container and manage it through a cluster like Kubernetes. I can also deploy it to a platform as a service. In fact, all of the major cloud providers have support for .NET Core and are working to, to keep up with the latest .NET Core version so you can deploy them as a service. So it not only makes it very um, it, it, easy is a bad term because we all do <laughs> real development. We know development is never easy. So we'll say easier to uh, get started, develop, and then uh, deploy out to uh, wherever you need to, to host that application. So I see two things that that I think are advantageous to pursuing, you know, utilizing .NET as your backend part of, of this type of application development. Um, one being the TypeScript thing, as we could see that, you know, yes, you're in C Sharp when you're writing this endpoint, but there's a lot of similarities between C Sharp and the TypeScript stuff. So there's kind of that bridge of you can you can make that connection and kind of still feel you're in the same space. Now there's some challenges. I mean. I've had it where I've jumped back and forth and I start doing something in C Sharp. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, that, right? I do that so too. You definitely run into <laughs> that. But there's, there's a lot of close similarities to it. So kind of like the, this, that bridge is, is pretty smooth to be working in those two realms, right? Now, if it's to say you have Node.js, you know, there's certainly solutions out there like Nest.js and stuff like that. It brings TypeScript into that formula and, and kind of get that same similar type of experience, right? Right. The other thing that I see that's really powerful, and you touched on this earlier, is that .NET has this history behind it, right? This vetted history, and it's a complete package. So it provides all this infrastructure. You mentioned the, the opting in through the middleware to different things. It, there's just this, this history of code base that has been written to solve a lot of these scenarios, problems, routing, all this stuff, right? And you get that with .NET um, from one vendor. Right? You don't have to kind of right. build these things together and piece them together. We think about it in like the, the node space, we would you know, start node and then we'd include something to handle our you know, routing and, and things like that. And, and .NET, you kind of have that in, the, in this core platform and you just start activating things. And I think that's another real compelling uh, story there. Well, I think a, another thing too, and unfortunately I didn't prep a demo for this, but as you were talking, it, it made me think of this. .NET also has a technology built in called SignalR. And uh, SignalR is, is pretty amazing. It, it can run on the server. We also have it as a service in, in Azure. 
but it allows for real-time messaging. You have hubs, you can send messages to hubs and subscribe and get real-time updates. So, you know, the con canonical example would be an Angular chat app, right? So I can write an Angular app and on the Angular side, there's a, a client that's just doing uh, very straightforward calls. You, you can include it as a package and you can subscribe to a hub, you get an event, you do things with the event. On the server side, it's a very straightforward setup as well. But this is very useful for the the type of like dashboard and monitoring apps where you want those real time updates with that. So that's another strong advantage I see because it makes it straightforward and it basically the the magic of of Signal R, which if you look at it is Signaler, right? So we're signaling. Oh wait, I'm gonna do my hand wave again. Oh, that time I just bounced up and it was good to go. But, it would uh, be good if you could like time that with what you're saying, so that all of a sudden it's like. Ooh. I'll say something profound. But if you do this, the lights it'll go get out. Dark, and then <laughs> when you turn on Signal R, which is really <laughs> Signaler, but um, the the interesting thing is it will use a variety of of technologies. If it has to to fall back to something as simple as polling, it'll do that. If there are web sockets available, it'll activate a channel through a web socket. And there's this guarantee built into using a, a similar API that if there's something new called foo messaging in the future, that's an even better format. SignalR will adopt that into its stack of protocols and use that. So that's that's pretty cool. But I went on a little bit of a tangent because I did want to talk about another way that Angular and .NET can work together. So I, I want to stop because you may have some questions or feedback, but then I want to jump into that that secondary example. It's okay. We love your tangents. And I'm watching the <laughs> uh, YouTube chat, and I don't have any questions so far. So okay. I'll let you know. Okay. So the, the other flavor I showed you the uh, common example of here's Angular over here, and then we have something else over here. That endpoint uh, might be Node, it might be .NET Core Web API. Maybe we're in a shop that has both. That's certainly something that I've come across. There is an option to host Angular and .NET together in the same project. And there are some reasons you'd want to do that. So I'm going to share my screen again. Let's do this entire screen, move off the Inception page, and just let me know once uh, you can see that. Yep, we can see it. Okay, I'm going to shut down what I've got running here and here and show you that if I want to do, so I did a, a .NET Core, or I did a .NET New and did Web API. So there's another option. I'm going to make a directory called net and angular. Now I'm going to do a .NET new angular. So this is a template that will produce a package that has .NET core and angular together. Now, if I were to do .NET run, this would also include npm install which we know that combined with uh, watching Netflix movies takes up all the bandwidth on the internet. So I'm not going to subject us to that. I, I have it prepackaged here. This is a project. Let me close out my windows here. This is a project ng hosted that has Angular and .NET Core together. Now what's interesting to note is there's this client app right over here. 
And if you look inside client app, you'll see very familiar, just what you would see with NGNU. In fact, this client app is a standalone Angular application in the sense that I can navigate to that directory. In fact, let me just go ahead and show this. In a clear, we'll move into ng hosted, go into client app. So I can do ng serve and stand up the Angular application from inside here. And uh, what's nice about that is if I want to upgrade to a new Angular version, now that Angular has a great uh, upgrade story, it, it wasn't as smooth in, in the past. And, and I've actually taken this, I believe this is uh, Angular 5 version that it's running out of the box. And someone asked me, well, how do we do this with, with Angular 6? And I actually just did an inline upgrade and it worked fine. But this is what, this is what I was talking about, Jeremy, at the beginning of the show when I said, you just make this stuff seem so easy because you're so calm about it. Like, oh, we're just <laughs> going to do this and then we're going to do this and then we're going to fire it up and it's going to work. And it's like, oh, okay. And it's like, it seems so mysterious. But after you do that, it's like, well, hey, now I can like rewind this show and I can do it too. And it's great. Awesome. No, no pressure not to uh, fail at all in these next examples. Oh no, it can't be reached. What'd you do well, to me? It's because you're it's it's a live demo. It's, you kind of have to like have a problem. You can't just smooth right through a live demo, Jeremy. Well, I mean, maybe you can. But <laughs> see, I, I was making a joke because I was so confident it would actually work. Yeah. See what happens. And oh, you're missing you're missing an L. Local host. A local host. Our host is Loka, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's a, a Hello World app, and I've got a counter that's going to work fine because this is all client-side Angular code. But when I fetch data, we're going to look at this uh, loading indicator for a really, really long time because there's no backend to, to service this because I'm just running the Angular side of things. So let me pop in here and break out of this and do something different. Instead, I'm going to move back to the root directory and I'm going to do .NET run. Now when I do .NET run, here's, here's where the magic comes in. The .NET framework understands how to interact with the Angular CLI. So it's going to stand up a host that is, is the part that's standing up our endpoints, our REST endpoints that we talk to, but it's also going to talk to the Angular CLI and compile and serve the Angular assets. And we'll, we'll let it build. And of course, you know the trick. I've been sharing the secret too much, but if you move the mouse clockwise, it usually speeds up. There we go, compiled successfully. And so now we should be able to come back and not to 4200, We'll go to the endpoint for the .NET Core app, which is 5001. And now we've got the same application, but the backend's wired, so we get the weather forecast. That fetch data worked, and, and we got something here. So this is, is interesting in that I can have a coordinated build and, and run experience, but where I think the, the real powerful ugh, power comes from is if I break out of this, let's this terminal down and I'm going to go into my debug window and I'm going to tell it to pick do I not have that configuration in this one you're supposed to answer me when I know <laughs> I'm kidding 
All right, let's see. NG, oh, I know what I need to do. Let's uh, come out of Visual Studio Code. And let's go into, I'm going to go into that specific project. NG hosted. Now I'm just inside that that one project in Visual Studio Code, and hopefully, if I pull up my debug window, I'll get the option. There we go, ASP.NET Core and browser. So I'm going to pick that, and let's actually demo what I'm showing. So this is my server-side code that's creating a random weather forecast. I'm going to come inside here and just click in the margin to put a breakpoint there. This is my Angular code. Here's my app. And let's do the counter. And in the counter, what will happen is it will increment the count. So let's go ahead and put a breakpoint there. And now I'll go back to my debug window. I could Control-Shift-D, but who's paying attention? And press play. Hey, Jeremy, uh, do those configurations come out of the box with this .NET new Angular project? Uh, they do not, unfortunately. However, on the GitHub project that I showed and on the blog post series that I wrote in conjunction with this, I showed the exact, you can just copy and paste and drop them in to, to make this work. So it's a little bit of a tweak. Out of the box, it'll give you a way to debug Angular. And out of the box, it'll give you a way to debug .NET Core, and then you just need to create a special launch profile that combines the two together. And then if we do that and refresh this, I'm going to come into my application. Yeah, it's not private, but we don't care. Do, do, do not do this at home, by the way. Do not just click on links that say they're unsafe. You're such a maverick, Jeremy. <laughs> And it's actually building, if you see over on this side, we're still building some modules. That's why we haven't loaded yet. We'll give it a little bit of this uh, winding it up action here with the cursor. And now we're here. Let's go to the counter and increment. And we can see back here I've popped into my code. So let me... Uh, let's see. Well, I'm, I'm not going to do that. But you can see I have this breakpoint. If I let it play through, then it increments there. If I go to fetch data, you can see the loading. We come back here. Now we're on the server side. We can step over the code here, let it play through, and then it returns a value. So one of two advantages to integrating the project. One is this seamless debugging from the, the client through the server, which is extremely helpful. And by the way, you can absolutely separate these projects on deployment and serve your static files from a static website and just use this for the development experience. The other thing, which I'm not going to have time to get into too much, is that .NET Core also understands how to work with Node.js and use uh, something called Angular Universal which enables server-side rendering. And I go through that on a, a blog post, but effectively you can render pre-render pages on the server and deliver them. So the idea is it gets to the user faster. 
what happens, it'll refresh or load that page that's been pre-rendered on the server, and then it'll actually run a, a loop of the client-side code so that if there's anything else dynamic that needs to click into place, it, it can happen. Very cool. One, one of the things that kind of got glossed over because it just happened so fast, right, is the fact that uh, this package, you know, the, the .NET new Angular had everything set up to launch those two applications at the same time, right? And if we think about it, like in space of if we set up our own Angular app and we set up a, a node backend, we, we spent a lot of time writing NPM scripts or something of that like to kind of stand up our environment, right? And right. you show that out of the box, this thing had a way to kind of run the CLI command and have everything stand it up. We didn't have to go through that process as developers. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and the um, I, I wish I could say the server-side rendering was out of the, the box too, but that requires a few tweaks. You add a middleware module that understands how to talk to Node and Angular Universal to get the, the pages rendered, but um, I have all those steps too, and it, it's pretty straightforward. And uh, I did test it upgrading to the latest version of Angular, and the server-side rendering still worked fine with the out-of-the-box template, which is pretty cool. Very cool, very cool. All right, well, we're near the top of the hour. Um, any last things we want to add to the Angular.net discussion before we get into picks and go down anything? Um, the, the only thing that I didn't get into too much is um, there's a, a great, if you're a shop that happens to be working with Azure, and I'm sure this could be the case for other cloud providers, I just ironically am not as familiar with those, but there's a great integration experience for deploying these to the web, whether it's a separate Angular hosted a static and then a, a .NET uh, API endpoint, or if the project's combined. Even if I do the, the project that has Angular and .NET Core together, there's a very straightforward experience to deploying it, whether it's on an on-premise server or out to the cloud. And then once you get to the cloud, where the real fun is, is taking advantage of those types of services that scale for you, right? So I'm not provisioning servers. I'm not standing up a VM. I'm deploying a web app. And then I have slider bars that say, hey, as more people hit it, uh, give me more instances, and I don't want to worry about it. And it handles, and then things like micro billing, only pay me when my app's being used, when it's not, who cares? So if I were to stand up uh, jeremylickness.com as an app, I'd probably take advantage of that because I'm sure people aren't on the page all day just hitting refresh. And so I want to save some time. So so that's a, another advantage in, in summary. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, let's get to some picks. Uh, Bonnie, do you have any picks? I do. I actually, you know, sometimes I like to pick a person. Um, and I met a really cool person. Uh, but also, the, I want to pick the actual thing that he built, and one of the one of the reasons why he's cool. Uh, so there's this thing called uh, Perfume.js. Have you guys heard of it? No. So okay, and I'm not going to tell you to follow follow Leonardo on Twitter because he already has more Twitter followers than me. So if you want to follow <laughs> him, it's uh, Zizamia. He's very Italian. Uh, Z i z z a m i a. But also, if you Google performance Perfume.js. Uh, it's a monitoring service. It's it's like a small little thing that he wrote, um, basically to to monitor the rendering of your uh, Angular performance and see how fast you get to uh, to the first init. Uh, it's just a small little thing, and it just lets you. It just like makes gives you this really cool chart so that you can see how fast your your uh, uh, 
performance is, how fast your page is loading. And it also shows you on multiple different, uh, uh, you know, devices. And it's just, it's cool. Go check it out. Perfume.js and Leonardo uh, Zizamia, who I met at the uh, GDE conference in North America. He's so cool. And he, he also, I, I think he runs the, um, the uh, San Francisco Angular meetup with uh, Minko, who is also very cool. Anyway, but don't follow him on Twitter because he has way more followers than me. <laughs> Chances are you probably already. And don't tell him I said that. What? Chances are you probably already follow him on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And don't tell him I said that. No. Yeah, our our secrets always safe here on this live broadcast. Hey, Jeremy, uh, you have any picks? Uh, I do. I have, I have three picks, but I can go through them quickly. One of them is uh, developer related. And uh, this is something I share for the .NET viewers as, as well. There's a very cool Node app called Artillery. And it's uh, just how it sounds that does load testing. And I discovered it actually talking to the, the serverless functions team here and uh, did a demo for the first time because what was great was I was showing how, hey, this service auto scales. And now I was able to show the service, run Artillery, emulate a load test and show server scaling automatically. But it's very easy and straightforward to use, very powerful functionality. It's Node, but uh, it's worthwhile to uh, install Node and take advantage of some of the, the cool tools there, even if we're testing at the end of the day .NET Core applications. So that's one. Two, and this is going to seem outdated to some people, but I want to give a plug for Google Wi-Fi. I bought a set of three pucks several years ago for my old house. We drove cross country, moved from Atlanta to Seattle. And when we would go into temporary housing, I would plug the puck into the Wi-Fi at the place I was staying at. And no one had to change their settings for Wi-Fi, had a secure spot. And then in my new house, the setup took me like 10 minutes and I have three levels. I have a basement where my main TV is. I have a, a floor level where the kitchen and kind of the family room is, and then an upper level with the bedrooms and three pucks are good enough to spread that Wi-Fi to three levels. So big plug for just ease of use and uh, how well it works. Oh my gosh. I got to back Google Wi-Fi for sure. That is, I love it too. Uh, I haven't touched router configuration in my home in like forever since I got those things. It's they're a killer for sure. And then my, my last plug is the new watch I got. It's a, I'll admit, it's a not, not the least expensive fitness watch, but it is a Phoenix 5 from Garmin. And uh, oh my goodness. Uh, so the two things I love about it, one is the battery lasts forever, days and days. And I, I do quite a bit of running and the running will drain the battery because there's continuous GPS, but it'll still last me days before I have to recharge it. It recharges quickly. But the other cool thing is it has quick swap bands. So I have a metal band that came with it that I wear for casual use or going out and about. And then I have a rubber band that I quickly snap in when I'm working out and it just makes it super, super straightforward and easy to use. And then it's got, the, it loads maps. I can ask it, Hey, I want to do a five mile run and it'll figure out a route based on where I'm at for that run. So super cool. Those are my, my picks. Oh man, you got me needing to spend some money here. I still <laughs> my iPod nano. So. All right. Yeah, it's not a zoom. No zoom. No. no. 
No, are there still operating zoons out there that still were run? I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. There's yeah. probably someone who's made one work. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, Jeremy, thanks a ton for sharing your time and coming on and uh, talking.net with us. We really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. Have a good one. We'll catch you next time. Later.